Good morning. It's Friday, the 8th of September, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports and themes for the day. Foxconn returns to the table after breakup with Vedanta to now tie up with ST Microelectronics NV for a semiconductor plant. Stocks on Dalal Street stay up. Morgan Stanley predicts a 10% run up in the markets to the elections. A wedge thali is now 24% more expensive than last year. It could have been worse, but falling tomato prices help. What does the G20 have in store for India? With Indrani Bakshi at the Ananta Center. And stock picking in a heated market. Should one buy loss-making companies? With Bharat Shah of Ask Investment Managers. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Semiconductor action picks up again. Foxconn Technology Group is partnering with ST Microelectronics NV for a bid to build a semiconductor factory in India. Taiwan's Foxconn and Franco-Italian STM Micro are looking to build a 40 nanometer chip plant, sources told Bloomberg News. These mature chips, as they're called, are used in cars, cameras, printers, and a wide variety of other machines. The project will seek and expect anywhere between a 50 and 70% subsidy including from the state in which it is being constructed, at least if I were to go by past instances. Foxconn's earlier attempt to partner billionaire Anil Agarwal's Vedanta Resources fell apart after a year of less or little progress. The joint venture would have led to a $19.5 billion investment and plant. ST Micro is a chip industry pioneer as opposed to contract manufacturer Foxconn. ST Micro is a $16 billion Geneva headquartered company and has 14 manufacturing plants and more than 50,000 employees worldwide with 9,000 employees working in R&D and product design alone. The company has some 19,500 active and pending patents, according to it. Neither Foxconn nor Vedanta could put together a project with production-ready chip technology for obtaining approvals for state subsidies. Foxconn, as you all know, is Apple's key assembly partner and is also in talks with a few other companies that have chip-making technology. One of the people who are familiar with the matter told Bloomberg. India, like countries including the United States, is trying to boost chip output to reduce reliance on expensive imports and dependence on Taiwan and China. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has pledged $10 billion to Wu chip makers, promising his administration will bear half the cost of setting up semiconductor sites. And of course, some of the states where those plants will come up or manufacturing units will come up could also kick in some subsidies. Now, this whole effort has prompted US memory chip firm Micron Technology to announce a $2.75 billion assembly and testing facility in Gujarat. The first company to launch Made in India memory chips will, however, be Delhi-based Sahasra Electronics and are expected to launch between this month and the next. Sahastra, a company that we spoke to on the core report a few weeks ago, has traditionally produced a range of electronics equipment, including pen drives and solid-state drives, used either outside or inside computers for memory storage. Sahastra got going with its semiconductor project and plans in January 2021, and test runs have been taking place since March this year. In its current form, Sahastra is more an outsourced semiconductor assembly and test or OSAT company, which means it assembles and packages chips for other brands after importing the wafers. Now, any chip project, including Foxconn's, will have to make detailed disclosures, including whether it has firm binding agreements with a technology partner for production, as well as financing plans. 
Other chip-related companies also setting up in India right now include Advanced Micro Devices, or AMD as the brand is known, and equipment maker Applied Materials, which plan to spend about $400 million each on R&D and engineering centers in Bangalore. As we've discussed in the core report earlier, India is in a global race to grab manufacturing that's moving out of China, and the race that's also being driven by subsidies being offered by many countries, including in the developed world. Moreover, in areas like semiconductors and batteries being the fuels of the future, there is strategic importance or imperative to have domestic manufacturing or put differently, supply chain anxiety. The Wall Street Journal, for example, reported a few weeks ago that Intel had been offered $11 billion in subsidies from the government in Germany to build two semiconductor plants in what Prime Minister Olaf Scholz called the largest foreign direct investment in German history. Stocks stay up, maybe a mini bull market. Several leading institutional brokerages are already speculating on what will or not happen in the general elections at this point scheduled to be held in April-May next year. Whether or not elections will affect economic growth or the fate of the Sensex is not clear to me, but it does seem a little early to kick off these discussions. But then, stock markets and stock prices are about pricing in the future, so there must be some method in this madness. Morgan Stanley, who I can now call the perennial bull, in a report titled quite suggestively, One Billion Voters, Will They Please the Market?, says it expects the market to rise about 10% to the election date in anticipation of continuity and a majority. Post-election, we see potential for the market to swing in a wide range depending on the outcome. The biggest investor debate is whether India will vote for continuity and a majority, says Morgan Stanley, also mentioning, lest it not be caught out later, that all this assumes that election dates are not advanced, which is a possibility. More importantly, Morgan Stanley points out that historically the Indian market approaches elections with optimism, pricing in results that favours continuity in government with a majority. You might of course be tempted to conclude at this point that Morgan Stanley is somewhat openly batting for the present government, But to be fair, continuity is what markets and, for that matter, investment banks always like and uncertainty is what everyone, at least in the markets, hates. Now, Morgan Stanley also asks us not to ignore non-political factors, which include the US stock markets, interest rates, growth, crude oil prices, inflation, all of which will be in the mix when it comes to share prices. Speaking of share prices, the BAC Sensex ended the day up 385 points at 66,266. In doing so, the BAC Index has now rallied 1,434 points in the last five straight trading days. The NSC Nifty, not far behind, closed 116 points higher at 19,723. Now, this index has risen 473 points in the last five straight sessions. Thali prices still stay up. If the stock markets are rising, other prices must be rising too. Actually, there is no such theory, though it does always feel like that. We're back with rating agency Crystal's Thali Economics, or its monthly indicator of food plate cost. The cost of vegetarian thalis in an average Indian household has jumped 24% in August as compared to August 2022, rating agency Crystal said in its monthly roti rice rate report released on Thursday. Now, this is the second time that the cost of a vegetarian thali has risen in 23-24. A non-vegetarian thali, just to put things in perspective, has risen less at only 13%. Now, of that 24%, 21% can be attributed solely to the price of tomatoes, which rose 176% year-on-year to about 102 rupees per kg from rupees 37 per kg last year. Importantly, some prices are now going down too. 
Tomato prices are of course down to about 51 rupees per kilo. Edible oil prices are down 17% year on year as we've been discussing in some detail on the core report. And also, as I just learned, potatoes, which are down by 14%. And finally, gas cylinder prices are down too. And for homes using LPG or liquid petroleum gas for cooking, we'll find the bill a little lower. Gas cylinders were costing about 1,103 per piece and are now down to 903 rupees for most consumers. So a vegetarian thali, just in case you wish to be reminded, comprises roti, vegetables, that's onion, tomatoes and potatoes, rice, dal, curd and salad, at least for the purpose of calculation. And Chrysal uses an average cost based on input prices prevailing in North, South, East and West India. From Thali, moving on to G20 that starts today, what should we be looking out for? There's a good chance that you've encountered some aspect of a G20 meeting or visit in your city or town in India. If nothing else, you could not have missed the bright lights that usually adorn streets to and from the airport. The one-year program is now ending this weekend with the final summit in Delhi. So let's get a quick background before we find out what we should be looking out for or takeaways we can expect. The G20 was founded in 1999 after the Asian financial crisis of 97-98 as a broader informal forum for finance ministers and central bank governors to discuss economic and financial stability. Since the 2008 global financial crisis, there have been annual meetings of government leaders. The G20 does not have any permanent staff or headquarters for either and different members take turns being president and setting priorities as India is currently. Broadly, as per figures from Bloomberg, the body collectively represents about 85% of global economic output, 75% of international trade and two-thirds of the world's population. The G20 members are Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, South Korea, Turkey, the United Kingdom and the United States, and of course the European Union. However, others are also invited and this year's invitees include Bangladesh, Egypt, Mauritius, Nigeria, Oman, Singapore and the United Arab Emirates. The G20 focuses on many things, but usually zeroes in on economic issues, climate change and education. And it could also reflect, depending on the year, the COVID-19 pandemic and of course Russia's war in Ukraine right now. More agenda items and deliverables are driven by the host nation. In India's case, these include taking a human-centric approach to issues like climate change and food security, says Bloomberg. More specifically, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is pushing for an agreement amongst members to triple renewable energy capacity by 2030 after a similar proposal was blocked by oil titans Saudi Arabia and Russia in July, says Bloomberg. So what are the big takeaways expected? Also remember, before I get to that, that both Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are not coming, but President Joe Biden is. I reached out to Indrani Bakchi, CEO of foreign affairs think tank Ananta Center, and also a former diplomatic editor of Times of India, and now a columnist there. I began by asking her what she was looking out for from this time's G20. The couple of things that I would be looking for as key takeaways from the summit coming up is a whether the 20 leaders actually end up getting a leader's statement or what is an agreed outcome document. As you know, the biggest problem there, there are, well, several, but there is one big hurdle there. The second is progress on multilateral MDB, a multilateral development bank reform. This is actually, if it goes through, if it can be continued and agreed upon in terms of implementation, 
in terms of timelines, in terms of agreed deliverable by the 20 nations, will be actually be quite big. And it will actually sustain much beyond the current G20 presidency, because it will be a first stab at reforming development banks after at least the Bretton Woods sisters post-1945. So that would be big. The third important thing that I would be looking out for would be to see whether the issue of just transition or climate financing, sustainability in terms of agreed sustainable development goals and how to get there, if there is movement or progress in all of these areas. These would be the top three, I would imagine. Right. So you said the one big hurdle that might prevent that joint statement from coming out. Two questions there. So one is the hurdle, the non-participation of the Chinese president. And the second is, even if, let's say, some heads of state do not make it, does that prevent that statement from being put together? No. To be honest, even the Chinese president's absence will not prevent that statement from coming together if the Chinese actually indicate agreement on the contentious issues. But the biggest hurdle is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The insistence by 17 countries to record it in every outcome document, their criticism, their condemnation of the invasion, and Russia and China pushing back by refusing to allow documents that have this particular reference. As you remember, in Bali, we had the same problem. But they achieved what was called the Bali paragraphs. The Bali paragraphs said three things. One was that they recorded UN Security Council's condemnation of the war, which, because it was a UN Security Council condemnation, was totally okay to carry. The second, they had a formulation that said some countries criticized the war. And the third thing they put in was Modi's line to Putin that this era is not an era of war. These were the three things that made up the Bali paragraphs. Early 23, when they started negotiating in the Indian presidency, the Chinese and the Russians were very clear. They said, we will no longer accept the Bali paragraphs. So that brought everybody back to point zero. Because the Russian and Chinese argument was that since the Western sanctions on Russia and China have increased, the West have now overtly militarily helping Ukraine so their condemnation really didn't carry that kind of weight. And so, therefore, we've been at a diplomatic impasse for the last eight to nine months. These obviously are also fertile ground for bilaterals. And Biden and Modi are expected to meet and discuss. Is there anything that you're looking out there specifically? Two things. I think I'm going to be looking for an agreement on civil nuclear. Because after the 2008 civil nuclear agreement, India passed this civil liability law, what we call the liability law, that makes it very difficult for foreign suppliers to supply components to Indian nuclear reactors for fear that they would be hit by liability clauses. They are working out a language that would be agreeable to both sides on India accepting sovereign liability for civil nuclear plants. That and the aerospace and defense, because they started the process of um, acquiring predators and manufacturing the GE jet engines in India. So I think there will be some stuff on that. And the biggest item on the table for India and America, frankly, as both countries go to the polls next year, is aerospace and defense. That is one of the biggest areas that they are working on. 
under this new platform called ISET, Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technologies. So these would be the big ones. But on the side, you know, we are hearing that Biden might be our Republic Day chief guest in 2024. That, so to see whether there is any agreement on that. Right. So what's the one big event that everyone will be heading for over the next three days? Let me first say that Delhi looks beautiful in pictures, but if you're trying to drive around Delhi, it's impossible. But the big event will certainly be the Prime Minister's big dinner for the heads of state. And I think some 50 of the top Indian industrialists are there. But I think altogether they're calling in about 500 top industrialists from everywhere. So this is going to be a huge event. And that's something that everybody is going to be looking out for. Rani, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Gobit. And finally, before I go, here is a sneak peek of my conversation with Bharat Shah, director of Ask Investment Managers, well-known wealth and portfolio management firm. Shah is an old hand at fundamental investing in the markets and someone I love to interview, though I haven't had that many opportunities of late, particularly when I'm a little confused on what reflects value in the stock markets and does not. I did get that opportunity this time and I asked him how he was looking at stock picking in the current public markets and whether, if anything, had changed. The question, of course, reflected my own confusion at seeing a battery of tech IPOs, for lack of any other term, hit the market in the last year, most of whom are at this point quoting below their offer prices. The full interview plays out on the Core Report Weekend Edition on Saturday on video on YouTube and audio on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I don't think fundamental investing principles or valuation thoughts have changed. Markets in the core character remain the same. Ultimately, businesses have a value not because some large number of people or large amount of capital at a point of time think so. That may happen when large capital or large money chases something at a point of time. But these are ephemeral and temporary outcomes. Ultimately, long-term value in a business will come only if the business creates a real economic value. Real economic value, there is no confusion where it comes from. It comes from when the business earns superior return on capital employed compared to what it costs those businesses to use that capital pool. Therefore, superiority of economic returns or economic efficiency or return on capital employed over the cost of capital is a very important benchmark of um, whether value is being created, neutered or obliterated. At a point of time, there may be legitimate reason that the business may not fully meet with the cost of capital. The return on capital employee falls short of that cost of capital. Well, if a business structurally is going to remain stymied and will have to live with negative outcome on a year-after-year basis, there is no benediction from above whereby the value of the business has to rise. It cannot and will not. So whether the businesses do need to make profits, without any doubt. Whether they do need to make it in a reasonably foreseeable manner, again, without any doubt. Whether these profits are accidental or emanating from a business model, obviously they have to come from the business model. It can't be an accidental chance as an outcome. 
whether they have to appear as prophets in the reasonably foreseeable future rather than very distant, unseeable horizon. Again, nothing has gone away from that. And if the business makes no profits or losses today, clearly in order for it to have a value today, the expectation has to be and has to be fulfilled that it will make profit soon and it will be large enough and it will cover for the period during which those profits have not been there or losses have been there so that the overall value assigned today mathematically and otherwise uh, kind of synergizes. So nothing of that uh, goes away and clearly profits are not accounting profits only. Real profits are the cash flows and the real cash generated in the business. There can be legitimate reasons why a good business or a sound business, there can be temporary mismatch on this equation. But if that mismatch is on a forever basis or there is no easy way to resolve that dilemma and therefore it becomes kind of a gambling opinion, or if that equation is not large enough in favor tomorrow if it is unfavorable today, or that doesn't happen soon enough so that all the value diminution is taken care of, then eventually the reality will catch in. So nothing goes away from that. Businesses have to create economic value for them to have market returns. There is a perfect correlation between the two. Long-term value of a business and long-term returns generated from that investment are perfectly correlated. And that's it from me and the team at The Core Report, led by our executive producer, Joshua Thomas. Do visit www.thecore.in, read our newsletters, share our podcasts and our website links. Have a great weekend ahead and see you on Monday for our weekday edition. Bye for now. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.